It's Friday, June 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court has blocked the Trump administration's bid to end the DACA program. While the court agrees that Trump can end the program, the decision written by Chief Justice Roberts said they did not properly weigh how ending the program would affect those who had come to rely on its protections. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for the decision on DACA. Next, some more good news on the fight against COVID-19. A study out of the UK has found that dexamethasone, a cheap and widely used steroid used to reduce inflammation, reduced death rates by about a third in the most severely ill COVID-19 patients that were on ventilators. The drug, however, did not provide any benefit for those that didn't need respiratory support. Jeremy Olson, healthcare reporter at the Star Tribune, joins us for more. Finally, despite what your local rules around face masks are, you'll want to make sure you have one if you're going to be flying. Air travel is starting to pick up, and most airlines require that you wear a mask, but if you want to be difficult, it could land you on an airline no-fly list. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for Flying in the Pandemic. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Good morning. It is the Supreme Court decision upholding President Obama's wonderful action to support our dreamers. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. The Supreme Court ruled on Thursday in a five to four decision that the Trump administration violated federal law when it ended the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And it's going to uphold protections from deportation for about 650,000 unauthorized immigrants in the United States. Steph, tell us a little bit about what the Supreme Court decided with this. First of all, this was actually a surprise decision for a lot of immigration advocates and a lot of the people who I've been talking to leading up to this. Many people thought the Supreme Court would end up ruling in the other direction and allowing the Trump administration to end DACA. So this came on a little bit as a surprise. But it's important to note exactly what the Supreme Court is ruling on. They aren't ruling that the Trump administration can or cannot end DACA generally. They agree that the Trump administration has the legal authority to end DACA, just like the Obama administration had the legal authority to set it up. But what they're saying is that the way that the Trump administration went about ending DACA in the fall of 2017 wasn't following the legal procedures. And so for that reason... They are upholding DACA and allowing these protections for deportation to continue for the immigrants who are enrolled in the program. And Justice Roberts wrote that the Department of Homeland Security didn't properly consider what, if anything, to do about the hardship to DACA recipients if the program were to be terminated. What does that mean exactly? So this was a part of the oral arguments that I attended last fall at the Supreme Court. This is one of the arguments that people were making that the Trump administration didn't fully consider all the ramifications of ending DACA. And so in the opinion, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that, yes, he agreed that DHS didn't do enough to really take into consideration what would happen to DACA recipients if they were to end the program. He said that they should have looked into maybe different ways of undoing the program, maybe giving DACA recipients more time to finish schooling or other ways to make it easier on DACA recipients rather than just cutting it off immediately. So that was something that, in the opinion, Justice Robert said that, of course, DHS didn't necessarily have to do all those things, but they certainly did not 
take all those things into consideration and something that he said that they probably should have done. You did mention in your article, kind of by the numbers, who these DACA recipients are. Remind us of some of those numbers there. The DACA program is for people who are brought into the U.S. illegally as children. So they are under 16 years of age when they arrive in the country. And, and a lot of them have grown up in the U.S. So if you look at the data that DHS has pulled together on DACA recipients, most of them are in their 20s and early 30s. And nearly half of DACA recipients are 26 years old or older, meaning that they've been in the U.S. for at least 10 years. If they had to come to the U.S. under the age of 16 and are now 26 or older, that's a long time that they've begun to build their lives here. So this is one of the huge arguments behind keeping DACA in place and one of the reasons why DACA is actually a very popular program even among Republicans. Many recent polls show that even Republicans support the idea behind DACA. In some cases, majorities of Republicans support it. So what has been the reaction? I know President Trump took to Twitter, was pretty angry about it. This is likely going to elevate this issue of immigration for the presidential campaign again. But he was saying all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. He said, do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me? This is coming after there was another decision that didn't go his way. And he went on to say he's Mm -hmm. going to release a new list of conservative Supreme Court justice nominees. And if he gets the chance, he's going to pick from that list. Yeah, this certainly seemed to frustrate the president as we saw the quick tweet right after Supreme Court decision saying that these are horrible and politically charged decisions coming out of the Supreme Court. And of course, his follow up tweet as well, questioning whether the Supreme Court doesn't like him. And that's why they're issuing these decisions. And so this is certainly a political issue. And it's something that for a lot of Trump supporters, they do really care about the judges that Trump picks. We all know that many conservatives care a lot about the judicial branch and care a lot about getting judges that would support conservative views of reading the law. And so I think this is an opportunity for Trump to, again, bring up that important voting issue as we near November. As we said, the president, the administration does have the authority to end the program. It's just about how they do it. They can start the process over again, although it will take a long time. It'll take months. I don't know if it'll be something that will be ready to go by November, by the time the election that happens. But if they wanted to, they can go through the process again to end this program. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things that we're watching coming out of this decision. And that's, of course, the first thing. Will the Trump administration try to rush and end DACA through a different way? If you read the opinion from Justice Roberts, he lays out quite a few ways that the Trump administration could have rightfully ended DACA. There are quite a few pathways that he lays out. So it'll be interesting to see whether the Trump administration actually does go ahead and try this again. And then, of course, it's still questionable whether people can now begin applying for DACA as new applicants, something that there is not quite enough clarity on. And the Department of Homeland Security has not yet confirmed whether they will begin accepting new applications. Steph Kite, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The first trial to show a survival benefit, the authors estimating that one death would be prevented for every eight patients treated with this drug who were on ventilators, 25 patients treated who were on supplemental oxygen. Joining us now is Jeremy Olson, healthcare reporter at the Star Tribune. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Yeah, my pleasure. I wanted to talk about some good news in the treatment of COVID-19. We're finding out that a very common and cheap steroid is actually shows some promise in treating 
very ill patients, patients that are on ventilators and need breathing assistance. It's a drug called dexamethasone. And we're finding out about this from a British trial that showed some success in using it with these ill patients. Jeremy, tell us a little bit more about the study and what we know about this drug. It was a comparative trial. It's called the recovery trial in England. They're pooling patients who have COVID together in that country fairly well in this trial. And some of the patients received dexamethasone and others received what would be just called usual care in the treatment of the infection. And what they found was that, especially for those that were on ventilators, patients who were having real breathing problems due to their infections, the death rate went down by about a third, roughly, in the dexamethasone group, those that actually took the drug. And then in patients who weren't at that level yet. They didn't need ventilators to breathe, but they didn't need respiratory support, like a nasal cannula or something like that. The death rate went down about 20%. They put this out in a press release. Now, normally you'd expect results like this to come out in the New England Journal of Medicine or some big journal. First, they actually jumped the gun a little bit and put it out in a press release. So some doctors are waiting for more results, but it was nonetheless encouraging news coming this week. Yeah, I mean, everything is being released so fast, and we're hearing about how clinical trials are being pushed through you know, at warp speed and all. So it is kind of interesting the way they wanted to release this. And as you mentioned, there were some doctors that said, hey, well, it looks promising, but we're going to wait. We don't want to use it. Tell us how it works and how it affects the body, because this is a corticosteroid. We're finding out more about COVID-19, and it's not necessarily just a respiratory disease. It does affect the blood vessels a lot. So how does this work in the body? To start with, it helps to discuss the cycle of COVID. There seems to be a bit of a roller coaster effect with COVID. You get sick, you get the infection, symptoms emerge, respiratory symptoms, you have trouble breathing. And in a lot of patients, you start to get better. You start to creep upwards in your health, you're starting to feel good, and then bam, it hits you again. And it's this second cycle that is causing a lot of the deaths and severe consequences. It's your immune system kind of kicking in aggressively and perhaps too aggressively and it's an immune system reaction that, that can be fatal in a lot of these cases. Dexamethasone isn't going to do anything for your initial flu symptoms. It's not going to do anything for your sore throat, but it is a corticosteroid, and one of its functions is to suppress the immune system. It's a fairly blanket effect in muting the immune system. So when you give it to patients, it knocks down that immune system response and prevents the immune system from being overaggressive. So that seems to be how it works and, and why it's been effective in treating this second wave. Even from the study, they said that the drug offered no benefit to patients who didn't need respiratory support. So this is really just going to be used for the most critically ill people. That's correct. And, and I mean, the good news is we seem to be finding drugs for different stages. Obviously, earlier, a U.S. trial approved remdesivir, an antiviral drug. And that seems to be working at the earlier stage before patients get on ventilators and at this critical stage. So we, we're starting. We went from nothing a, a couple months ago to having drugs that are seem to work at different stages, and that's at least a start. And that's a weird thing because we keep hearing more about it and how COVID-19 kind of affects all sorts of different parts of the body. So it totally makes sense that a lot of these drugs that you would never really think of are used to kind of treat these very specific types of symptoms. And we're kind of creating this whole mosaic of ways to treat this right now. And I was surprised when I saw this press release, I was calling around to my local hospitals. I'm a little embarrassed to say this actually as a reporter, but I expected the hospital to say, yeah, we're going to wait and see if more of the results. We're encouraged. But a local medical center here, a trauma center, Hennepin County Medical Center said, we're glad this is what the results are because we've been using this drug this way since the start. They looked at the risk versus the benefit of dexamethasone and saw that the potential benefit, even in the absence of a lot of literature, 
was promising. And so they provided it to almost all of their patients who reached that critical stage. Other hospitals here in, in, in my area, in the Twin Cities, wouldn't touch it or did it very rarely. So it was interesting to see that that hospital had been so aggressive. And others have around the country. Henry Ford in, in Detroit is one. I'm sure there are some in, in California. I know there are some in California. So other hospitals have made that individual decision to just go ahead with it and, and await the trial results that we got this week. And the hospitals that you spoke to that were aggressive in using it, they were finding a lot of luck with it though, right? I mean, obviously they wouldn't keep using it if it wasn't helping out at all. Well, they can't say because they didn't do what this research did, which is, you know, have half the patients receive that drug and half not and see what happened. They just gave it to patients. But now at Hennepin County Medical Center, for example, they saw a lot of progress. Patients got better patients got off the ventilator. They were having results, but they also had patients who took it and still died. I mean, these are patients who were in serious condition anyway, so maybe that was going to happen. But the point is, yeah, they had seen some results, and it all came from the concern with this is that when you block the immune system and there's a virus running around in you, it might allow the virus to do its thing, to accelerate, to expand, for you to even be more infectious. So there has been some concerns about this drug, but then there had been other studies using this drug in patients who have what is called this acute respiratory syndrome and the severe state, and it worked. This was outside of COVID. This was other patients who had the severe lung problems, and it was working. So they kind of used this other research, applied it here, and we're having some results. Jeremy Olson, healthcare reporter at the Star Tribune. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. If you're not going to comply, the flight attendants aren't going to pick a fight with you in the air. But when you get on the ground, they're going to quiz you about why you didn't comply. And the airline has the option of putting you on a restricted list. Joining us now is Scott McCartney. He writes the middle seat column for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good to be with you, Oscar. So air travel has been rebounding. It's not at the levels that it was last year, but just from a few weeks ago, we're seeing like 54% more people starting to fly. So we're seeing an uptick. And one of the interesting things, obviously, we're still living in this time of coronavirus, trying to keep things clean and whatnot. But this kind of whole argument about whether to wear a mask or not to wear a mask that's playing out around the country is also playing out with the airlines. And there's some interesting things happening surrounding this. Some airlines, if you're not wearing them, they could put you on a do not fly list even. Scott, tell us a little bit about this. Well, this has been a real problem for airlines. There are no federal regulations on it, and airlines are only governed by federal regulations. So whatever a particular state does or city does or whatever doesn't apply to airlines. So they're kind of on their own. Most all of them in the U.S., with the exception of Allegiant, have required a mask, but many of them, Delta, United, American, and others, were simply enforcing it at the gate on the ground and not in the air. And a lot of people were getting on the airplane and taking them off. And as you mentioned, there's a great debate. Some people think they don't need to wear them, and some people think that's offensive because when you wear a mask, you're not really protecting yourself. You're protecting everybody around you in case you happen to be infected. So this week, airlines have gone to a tougher approach, at least at American United and Delta. It's an approach that actually JetBlue and Hawaiian have been doing already. And that is, if you're not going to comply, the flight attendants aren't going to pick a fight with you in the air. But when you get on the ground, they're going to quiz you about why you didn't comply. And the airline has the option of 
putting you on a restricted list. Now, that's up to each airline. It's not clear how long you might be restricted on the airline's no-fly list. I think it really depends on how big a jerk you are about it. But it's a threat that I think will resonate with a lot of travelers and force more compliance. Um, So the flight attendants can say, hey, if you're not going to put your mask on, we're going to turn in your seat number. They're going to put you on the no-fly list. And I think that'll force more compliance in the cabin. There's recent surveys that have been done that say that airport cleanliness is at the top of the list right now. It's up there with the prices of the actual flights. I think Southwest did their own surveying and it said the top three concerns for their passengers are clean surfaces, clean air, and masks. So it is a really important thing. Yeah, it is. And the survey you mentioned, uh, really quite remarkable. 85% of the travelers in the survey said cleanliness was a huge factor in a buying decision, really in a travel or don't travel decision. And that was at the same rate as ticket price. The folks who did the survey had never before seen another factor that scored as high as ticket price. So this is really important to travelers. You know, you mentioned the rebound in travel. And yes, over the last two weeks or so, there's been about a 50% jump in the number of people actually traveling, but it's off a very small base. The total number of people traveling is still down about 80% from where it was. So to get all those people back, there's going to have to be confidence that it's safe to travel. And, you know, I think the inconsistency that we've seen with with airlines and airports, just the general notion of, is it going to be safe or not? And there's not a lot of confidence in that. And a lot of people aren't going to get back on airplanes until they get that confidence. And we have to remember, too, what happens on the planes, where you're most susceptible to get sick. And there's this thing known as the hot zone. And these are the area of the two rows behind you and in front of you. And someone's not wearing a mask and they sneeze and that's going to go up in the air. And that's how transmission of this thing could happen. So it's really important on that. And I know that the airlines are also experimenting with not filling the middle seat or kind of offsetting the rows behind them, things like that. On an airplane, uh, on a basic single-aisle airplane, the tube is about 12 feet wide. It's really hard to get six feet apart. And as you mentioned, the the folks in the row behind you, um, a row is not a yard wide. They're 29, 28 inches away from you. And so there has been a lot of medical research on uh, transmission of viruses and other diseases on airplanes. And the key thing is the two rows in front, two rows behind. I think even with this, you know, even somebody walking down the aisle uh, who happens to cough or sneeze if you're sitting in the aisle seat, that's a risk of exposure. So there's really good ventilation and filtering of the air on the airplane, and it does move air from the ceiling to the floor, not sort of crosswise. And the filters on an airplane can filter out coronavirus, or at least substantially filter out coronavirus. So there are a lot of reasons that you can have some comfort that you're going to be safe, but the real risk is being in close quarters with people. That's just by definition what's going to happen on an airplane and getting exposed to whatever they're coughing, sneezing, uh, talking, and that's why masks are so important. Scott McCartney, writer of the Middle Seat column for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Always good to be with you, Oscar. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.